0: such as it is. But we do need the rain. All right, we're going to get started here. Uh, before I get into the meat of the study, I kind of wanted to share a little bit of world history with you. And you'll see its connection to the study as I go on. And some of you may even be familiar with this, this particular occurrence in, in history. And this was um, during World War II. And in 1923, a German engineer by the name of Arthur Scherbius he began manufacturing his invention called the Enigma machine. And the Enigma machine, uh, what it did, it coded information that um, it it was meant to help companies and businesses to secure their communications and protect against industrial espionage, you know, from people stealing their business secrets. By 1933, 10 years later, uh, both the German Navy and Army were using this ingenious machine, and they loved it because it was able to code their communications So an operator would type in a message and the Enigma machine would scramble it using different letters than the ones that the operator had put in. And whoever received the message had to know the exact settings of the machine in order to decode what was sent over to them. And during that time, Britain and her allies knew that this posed a very, very great threat Uh, against them because at that point in time, Germany was a juggernaut and they were going through Europe, taking over any and everything in its path. However, no code experts could break the Enigma code. But eventually, Poland was able to reconstruct an Enigma machine that they used to read Germany's messages between 1933 and 1938. With the German invasion of Britain imminent in 1939, the British recruited a brilliant mathematician by the name of Alan Turing, and they brought him on board to capitalize on Poland's efforts of having built the the first, or reconstructed that first machine. Alan Turing, along with other experts, uh, built early computers that they called BOMBS, B-O-M-B-E-S, not B-O-M-B. And these were uh, meant to work out all of the Enigma's vast number of code settings that it used in order to scramble messages. These computers were 7 feet wide, six and a half feet tall, weighed a ton, literally, had 12 miles of wiring in them, and 97,000 different parts. So literally, these things occupied an entire room. That's what they used to decode the Enigma messages. At its peak, these computers were able to crack 3,000 German messages that were sent every day. By the end of the war, that amounted to 2.5 million messages that had been cracked and decoded, many of which gave the Allies vital information about German positions in their strategy during the war. It's estimated that breaking the Enigma Codes played such an important role that it shortened World War II by two years and spared thousands of lives. And then you may know that this was eventually made into a, a movie. They didn't even release all of this uh, top secret code information until 1970, almost 50 years after they had discovered these codes and these machines. And I just thought this was fascinating, a piece of world history, because... If you, if you look at it, man's tireless efforts to understand something as perplexing as these enigma codes, they really put a lot of energy and effort and manpower behind it. Enigma means something hard to understand or explain, or an inscrutable or mysterious person. And I thought that that was a perfect definition uh, leading into our lesson tonight, because we're going to look at a spiritual enigma the mysterious, inscrutable, and amazing persons of our triune God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, Lord, and we just ask that your Holy Spirit just really be a teacher tonight, Father God, as we know is one of his wonderful attributes. Help us to grasp and learn as much as we can, Father, of your great and tremendous attributes as our triune God. Lord, we know that uh, as your children, Father, you desire for us to know you, Father. So we just ask now for a little revealing of the mystery of who you are and how you can be our triune God. We love you, Lord, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, the code breakers in World War II were eventually able to figure out how the Enigma machine worked and innumerable lives were saved because of their ability to work through this extremely complex, sophisticated, and constantly changing nature of this code machine. Also for centuries, believers and some of the greatest minds in Christendom have tried to wrap their minds around how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can be separate and distinct yet one. However, it's critical to our beliefs as Christians to accept this enigma of a complicated, unfathomable, and immutable, and unchanging triune God. As I was preparing this study, and I I spent a lot of time at it because it's huge. It's like, you know, the tip of the iceberg, and, you know, like with the Titanic, they couldn't see what was below water because it was so big. This was big. And so as I was preparing this, I just became so in awe of the multifaceted magnificence of our eternal triune God who chose to love us, who saves us, who lives in us. And even with the limitations of our finite thinking and mortal existence, he comes alongside of us and wants communion with us. Theologian Jonathan Edwards noted after studying the topic of the Trinity for quite a bit, he says, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. That was a very profound statement to me because he devoted a lot of his time as a theologian looking into this. So, that being said, don't expect me to unscrew the inscrutable. I will not be doing that tonight, but hopefully, I will be able to share with you a few aspects of our triune God that you can think about and meditate on, and see how He interacts with you and how He wants to commune more deeply with you. You'll also note that as we go through this, the term—and I'll just let you know—the term "Trinity" is really not found any place in the Bible. It's a theological term. It's 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 just what, you know, theologians have come up with. And I'll be using Trinity and triune God kind of interchangeably. And we're going to look at them in in three particular ways. First, the doctrine of the Trinity. Second, we're going to look at the dynamic persons of the Trinity. And then third, we'll look at the believer's dependence on the Trinity. Um, if you were here this past Sunday, you will note that Pastor Xavier touched on the Trinity as he was teaching on the life source of the church. He talked about the Trinity in kind of a general sense and the Holy Spirit's role specifically in our life uh, of the church. So you might hear some things that he covered again tonight. And I always think that, you know, whenever you hear the same information repeated, it's God telling us, knock, knock, you know, you need to, you need to listen up. Uh, Also, for a a more in-depth study, I really highly recommend that you get Xavier's three-part series on the Trinity, The Mystery of the Triune God. You can order this up in the bookstore after the study tonight. Excellent, excellent study. He spent three uh, three sessions going over this with us as a body several years ago. It's definitely worth uh, listening to. It, it it really goes into much deeper and wider um, explanation to the Trinity, and he, it's just a wonderful, wonderful study. And I really highly recommend it. So let's get started. We're going to start with the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is definitely a linchpin to our beliefs as Christians. It goes way back in church history to 381 A.D. when the early church council at Constantinople, uh, they codified the deity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity into what we uh, know today as the Nicene Creed. And I'm not going to read the creed. It's a very, very long. Google it uh, and you'll find it online. <laughs> And although Trinity doesn't specifically appear in the scriptures, just like rapture doesn't, but we understand it to be there, the scriptures do clearly teach that there are three distinct persons who together are the one and only true God. We have, as you may recall, um, Pastor X mentioned this, this Sunday, the Shema from Israel. And it's Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Even though we talk about a triune God and a trinity, he is one. In John 10.30 and 17.21, Jesus declares he and the Father are one. And he prays that believers all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us. We are temples of the Father and the Spirit living in us as one, 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us. Romans 8.9 affirms that, the God, that God the Son and God the Spirit are one. In John chapters 14, verses 16, 18, and 23, demonstrate that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. If I can get my slide up here, um, I want to show you what that looks like visually. It's a really good way for you to get um, a picture of how the, holy, how the triune God is put together. Okay, so you'll see here that you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then in the outer circle, it says the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. That's to demonstrate the distinctiveness between the three persons of the Trinity. But then in the center of the circle, you see that the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Son is God. That's where we get the triune nature of our God. The doctrine of the Trinity is there too, and it's defined as the Christian belief that there is one eternal God comprised of three equal yet distinct persons existing in one nature and essence, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And as Xavier mentioned this past Sunday, it's one times one times one equals one, not one plus one plus one equals one. That will never work. That's bad math in God's, God's economy. You fail his course there. But this is the enigma that I spoke of earlier. How can we understand a God who is three separate and individual persons, yet one? Each one is eternal, individually beyond time and space. Each one is equal. No one member of the Godhead is greater than another each one possessing their own divine nature and essence, existing wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally in the three members of the one Godhead. Now, there are some weak illustrations of that. We will never on this earth quite wrap our brains fully around this. But some of the weak illustrations that you can't take too far out because then they start to fall apart. But say, for instance, you're a wife, a mother, and a daughter. You kind of impersonate three people, but there's still just one you. Look at an egg. You've got a shell, a yolk, and a a white. It's still an egg in totality, but it has these three different elements. So whereas this is a very inferior illustration, it's as close as you might be able to comprehend with our finite understanding. In our wildest dreams, we couldn't conceive of a person with such unique attributes. I couldn't. I would never think of what that person would look like. He created us in his image in order to establish relationship and intimacy with us. He sacrificed himself so we can live in eternity with him, freed and unshackled from the bondage of our sin. And he lives within us to enable, instruct, and empower us to be more like him. The belief in the doctrine of the Trinity is important for us as Christians to accept. And notice I don't say to understand. It is beyond our understanding. This is something that we must accept by faith. In his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul didn't even try to explain the mystery or apologize for not fully understanding it. He simply stated what he accepted by faith, taught by Jesus, and witnessed by himself and others. And he said, and without controversy, meaning I'm not going to argue this point. This is not for debate. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. It is a mystery of God, and we have to accept that. Not a hidden truth, but something just outside of the realm of our reason and human logic. Yet God reveals certain aspects of this mystery to allow us a glimpse of his glory and of his holiness. The minute we try to logically kind of reason our way into fully understanding this doctrine is when we begin to lose our bearings on who he is and the one and the only true living God that he has become. We may attempt to make him small enough for our minds to understand, and in the process, we will diminish who he is and the divine greatness of all that he is and ultimately of his relationship to us. A lot of people have tried to put God in a box, breaking down the deity of each person of the Godhead to make it easier to digest. And from this way of thinking, we get Mormonism, we get Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarianism, the Jesus-only movement, and any other religion that misses the mark on the Trinity of God. Warren Weersby says, and he is very blunt about it, he says, Christians worship the triune God. Any other kind of worship is not Christian. Hello. He doesn't apologize. It's essential that we believe by faith that one God exists eternally as three yet equal distinct persons God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in one nature and essence as the Godhead. To deny the Trinity is to deny the Incarnation and to misunderstand the gospel. And if you dismiss the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is God in human flesh, you eliminate an essential of the gospel because if the Holy Father God did not offer up the righteous son of God, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, through the spirit of God, Hebrews 9.14, to die for our sins and raise himself from the dead, John 10.17 and 18, then there is no salvation, Acts 4.12 tells us and we will suffer the penalty of sin and the wrath of God the Father, Romans 6.23 says. So to misunderstand the gospel is to miss the salvation freely offered by the Father through God the Son, according to the power of God the Holy Spirit, acting as one God. So as Christians, we must believe in the triune God. We must accept by faith the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one eternal God comprised of three equal yet distinct persons existing in one nature and essence, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. This is essential to our salvation and our ability to live a life for the Lord. So as we continue through the rest of this study, that I kind of set that, that watermark there, let's continue to pray for ourselves and each other for the Lord to reveal and to illuminate the mystery of his triune character to the best of our understanding because we are limited. It's his desire that we grasp the necessary aspects of his deity for our growth and for our holy living. First Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 tell us, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The spirit unveils God's truth to our understanding, meeting us where we are to impart understanding as we need it. And that's why, ladies, I will just do a little bit sidebar. That is why it is so study, so important to study the word of God. If we are not in the word, there is no way we can understand who God is. How can he reveal something to us when we're not actively involved in the revelation, the illumination of his word? So studying God's word is essential, regardless of what, how little or how much we understand So now that we've got that foundation on the doctrine of the Trinity, let's build on that. And and I want to talk next about the energetic presence of our triune God as revealed in the dynamic persons of the Trinity. You know, as I studied the the different personalities of our triune God, I, I, I came to notice a pattern that there were certain events that they were all present and involved in that we as Christians are very familiar with and are essential to our beliefs. So as I read these scriptures back to you, kind of note where each person of the Trinity appears at these critical milestones of Christianity. So first, they were present at creation in the beginning. And if you remember our previous study that I did, Elohim was a plural name for a singular God as mentioned in Genesis 1, verses uh, 1 and 2. And he says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then we go to John John 1, verses 1 through 3, and speaking of Jesus, going back to the beginning again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was, that was made was made. Elohim, Jesus, the word, all in the beginning at creation. And the spirit of God. Then they were also present, all three, at the incarnation of Jesus. In Luke uh, chapter 1 verse 35, Mary was told that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. All three persons present at the incarnation. They were also present at the coronation of Jesus. As John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, Matthew 3 verses 16 and 17 records, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven, God the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased all three persons at the coronation of Jesus. They also attended Christ's ordination when he declared in Luke 4 verses 18 and 19 that he had been called by God to preach the gospel. And then Peter affirmed this further in Acts chapter 10 verse 38. And he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power for God was with him all three persons at the ordination. And then, of course, we have them appearing actively and responsible for our salvation, which I think is the utmost of all of their involvement. I think um, God exercises the best of all his attributes, I think, in salvation. And I think as I was thinking about this, it's his unselfishness. If you think about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave up his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his only son. Jesus willingly gave his life and the Holy Spirit never speaks of himself, but only testifies of Jesus. These are all unselfish attributes of God, our triune God, each person of that, of that triune um, personality. So the persons of the triune God are active and responsible in our salvation. Paul clearly identifies the saving work of the Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and he explains that God the Father chose us in verses 3 through 6. He's the source of our salvation. God the Son died for us in verses 7 through 12. He is the channel of our salvation. God, the Holy Spirit, seals us in verses 13 through 14. He is the agent of our salvation. And Peter goes further in making the Trinity's work in our salvation in First Peter 1, verses 1 and, 4, 1 and 2, I'm sorry. And he says that God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ salvation. It's a meshing, an interchangeable, equal, deified work of God through the three persons of the Godhead. And then after our salvation, our triune God is present to affect our education, in our understanding. In the upper room, Jesus taught his disciples to expect the three persons of the Trinity to teach them. In John chapter 14, verses 16, 17, and 26, and chapter 15, verses 26, he says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Then when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Again, As we grow in the Lord, as we go to the word, he's always, through his personalities, speaking to us, guiding us, allowing us to learn and to grow. The dynamic persons of the Trinity were also present for our sanctification, to set us apart apart as God's holy people. Jesus in John seventeen seventeen speaks of his part in our sanctification. He says, sanctify them by your truth, your word. And what's the other synonym for Jesus? The word, your word is truth. John 1, 1 tells us that. Then Paul recognizes God the father to do this work of sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he says, now may the God of peace, that's another term for God the Father, shalom, if you guys remember our study of the names of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then God the Holy Spirit participates in our sanctification. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, by the Spirit. And then last but not least, our justification is affected by the working of the persons of the triune God for both Old and New Testament saints, which I thought was interesting. In Romans chapter 4, Paul gives the example of the justification that was imputed to Moses so he could stand righteous before God, just as if he hadn't sinned. That's what justification means. When we are justified before God, he looks at us just as if we had not sinned. That same justification that was available to Moses is also available to us. And Paul said, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, the father, who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Romans 4:24 and 25. There is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 3:30. And Luke 2:25 says, "And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him." I just love what uh, this one theologian, um, he was a British theologian, Major W.E.N. Thomas, very impressive name. Uh, He said it best, though, to describe the dynamic work of the Trinity in our lives. He says, when God redeemed you through the precious blood of his dear son, he placed a powerful engine under the hood nothing less than the resurrection life of God the Son made over to you in the person of God the Holy Spirit. Again, the triune God, all those personalities working on our behalf. And and I know that that was a lot to go through, and I probably went through it way too quickly, but I, I wanted you to see how the dynamic persons of the Trinity are at every step in our relationship with God. You can't toss one out and say, you know, well, I don't need the Holy Spirit, or, you know, Jesus is optional, or God the Father is a maybe. You can't do that. The doctrine forbids it, and our growth in the Lord, our salvation, our very salvation is dependent on it. I'm going to have a quick pop quiz. I think I have a few minutes, and this is all part of the lessons we've already studied, and if you listen very carefully, you'll be able to shout out the answer without even thinking about it, okay? So these are about some of the attributes of our triune God. He made us in his image in order to have intimate relationship with him in concert with all three persons of the Trinity. Which triune God attribute is that? He made us in his image. Creator God? Creator the creator attribute. Okay, we're going to try another one. He conquered death and raised himself from the dead for our, our, our salvation. What do we call that powerful attribute? Hmm? Omnipotence. Oh, you guys got to go back and review our homework. <laughs> All right, this is the last one. Ready? What all-knowing attribute allows God to make known the mystery of his triune nature? Ah, thank you, Lord. And the angels sing. The dynamic persons of the Trinity are active and they are acting on our behalf. They are what we need, where we need them, and when we need them. They are separate and distinct in their persons and personalities, yet they are one God, united in deity, eternal and equal. Constantly in our presence and living within us is an incredibly dynamic triune God, ladies. He is sovereign over all. He sees all, knows all, and changes not at all. And he is is ever working on our behalf, And we have to recognize how that works in our lives. So finally, we're going to look at a little bit more personally how his work affects the believer's dependence on the Trinity. Earlier, I shared that the Trinity's role in our salvation, sanctification, and justification was some of the ways that he shows up. From that, we can see God is extremely interested and heavily invested in saving us and maturing us as we walk with him. But now let's explore some of the ways as believers that we are completely dependent on the Trinity for our intimacy with God. Now, this could occur in a lot of different times in our walk with the God and at different levels of of intensity. We don't all move at the same pace in our growth and maturity with the Lord. And, you know, some of us are down and some of us are up. Some of us are getting insights. Some of us are are just crumpled, you know, rags in in a corner. It it just depends on where God's leading us and and how he's leading us because he uses so many different things in our walk. But whenever it does happen, it is always deeply personal, and it draws us closer into communion and into fellowship with God. And fortunately, fortunately for us, our triune God hasn't made how to have deeper intimacy with Him a mystery. Now, that's one thing that we don't have to really search too hard for. Through the sponsorship of the three persons of the Trinity, we are provided with several avenues to deepen our intimacy with God, and in fact, he encourages and expects us to. Paul expressed his craving for greater intimacy with the Lord in Philippians 3.10, desiring that he, Paul, may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, this is just not a casual knowledge that Paul is speaking about. The word to know used here is the Greek for gnosko, and it means to know absolutely and in a great variety of applications and with many implications. This is a long, deep, and wide knowledge. We do this in a lot of ways through our dependence on the attributes of the Trinity, but tonight we really only have time to cover two two that I think are probably the most important, prayer and the word of God. Now, last week, Gloria did a wonderful, wonderful study in uh, leading us through prayer, corporate prayer, and it was, it was great. She, she gave us some great insights, some ways to focus on God and to ask him into our lives and into, into the challenges that we have. So intimacy through prayer is established by Jesus in Matthew 6, verses 6 through 13. He taught us intimacy with God through personal and private prayer. It's on our knees that we open our hearts and reveal our most intimate thoughts, our most desperate fears, our unmet longings, and outpouring of our love and worship happens during our private time with our triune God. Jesus tells us to go into our closet, close the door, and pray to our Father in secret. Abba, Father, God the Father is where our prayers start. He is who they are directed to. Matthew 6, 9 begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then God the Son is who we direct our prayers through. Remember, he's the channel. God's the source. Jesus is the channel. And he tells us in John fourteen thirteen that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then God, the Holy Spirit, carries our prayers into the throne room of God when we've lost strength and even the words to speak our most anxious pleas. Romans eight twenty six says, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Isn't that beautiful? That when we go to God and our throats are closed with grief or hurt or pain or despair, that the spirit of God can intercede for us and speak for us when we can't ourselves. Prayer is a channel for developing intimacy with God, enabled by his triune attributes. Through prayer, we can depend on a personal father God, an intervening son of God, and a helper by the spirit of God. Second, we're going to talk about the intimacy that we can develop through the word. God the Father gives us knowledge of him by his word. And again, that knowledge is that kenoso knowledge, that deep, wide, and high knowledge of him. Psalm one hundred nineteen, one sixty nine says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. He's asking us to cry out, and and we all have done that in our our prayers. And as we go to the word of God and search for for understanding, for comfort, for healing, that acknowledges our need for the word of God. Going back to study again, ladies, because when you get down to prayer, and it's hard times, as as Tony uh, Scotty recently said, when your life is in the blender, you need some words. And it's not something random. It's the word of God. That's what we need to speak. That's what we need to know. God the Son sees us adopted into the family of God by the word of God. In Luke 8.21, he said, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Think about it. As we hear the word of God in obedience to the word of God, we are drawing more closely into the family of God. I just thought that was a beautiful way of how we become more intimate with our triune God. And then we have protection with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6.17 tells us. So we're not left defenseless, ladies. And what what does a loving father and parent do? They protect you. That's an intimate, very close-knit relationship. That's a deep caring. That's what God does with his word, with the sword of the spirit. Understanding family and protection, these are the personal blessings and rewards we can experience by increasing our intimacy with the triune God through prayer and through his word. Regardless, ladies, of how big God is, and his ways can sometimes be past finding out, he still reaches out and draws us close to him. Every person of the Trinity is present, active, and involved in saving us, refining us, growing us, and drawing us into intimacy with the one triune God. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential to our Christian faith and salvation. It is the Christian belief that there is one eternal God comprised of three equal yet distinct persons existing in one nature and essence, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Is it mysterious? Yes, absolutely. But who wants to know everything about God? That makes him like us. He can't help me. <laughs> I don't know about you. But Pastor Xavier says, if we understand God's grace to be true, we can by faith be equally assured that what we cannot understand is just as true as what we do understand. The dynamic persons of the Trinity are constantly in our presence and living within us, active and acting on our behalf. They are what we need, where we need them, and when we need them. They are separate and distinct in their persons and personalities, yet they are one God, united in deity, eternal and equal. The believer's dependence on the Trinity is bound up in intimacy with our triune God through prayer and his word, and we're able to achieve understanding, family, and protection as personal blessings and rewards from a partnership and support from our triune God. The enigma of our triune God is exciting and it's inviting. And if you spend any time in the study of this, you will not be disappointed. But embrace what can be known of him through study of his word and through prayer. Let's rejoice in the magnificence and mystery of a triune God, just as Paul did in his spontaneous praise in Romans 11, 33, where he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, we just thank you once again, Father, just um, for your immeasurable word, Father, for your immeasurable attributes, Lord, that minister to us in every part of our lives and our relationship with you, Lord God. Help us, Lord, to see as clearly as we can, Lord, just your will and your way in our life, Father God. Help us to um, submit to and to agree to, Lord, those things that sometimes your triune attributes uh, help us to know and help us to understand better, Father. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much, that you reveal as much as you do, Father that you do not want us to be totally ignorant, Lord, that you desire for us through prayer and through your word to have a better understanding of who you are and who we are to you. Lord, thank you and we praise you when we just ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.